Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brian, and I'm here with my friend Paul. And uh, we're excited to talk to you this morning as we continue our series on the book of Nehemiah. In fact, today we're going to be looking at the last chapter of Nehemiah, and this is the last message we have uh, in this series. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and open them up there. Um, but before we dive into chapter 13, I think it would be helpful if we just look back at some of the things that we've been looking at over the past number of weeks and as we've been diving through uh, this series. If you were with us, you might remember that uh, a number of weeks ago, Pastor Kirk started us off in chapter 1. He was looking at this guy named Nehemiah. He was a servant under the king of uh, Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. And, and Israel had been in captivity uh, under Babylon, and Babylon was later uh, captured by or conquered by Persia. And, and, and the king of Persia had allowed some members of Israel to go back out of captivity, back to the promised land, and rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is uh, in a foreign land, and he hears, uh, he hears a report about the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And that things aren't going well, because Jerusalem has no walls. Uh, as Pastor Kirk went through this message, he invited us to look at Nehemiah's response, asking the question of what do we do with our discontent? And looking particularly at Nehemiah's approach of waiting and of grieving, which opened the door to confession and repentance. And he went through that before God opened the door for uh, him, the opportunity that came in chapter 2, to go back to Jerusalem and help lead the people in reestablishing the walls of Jerusalem. When we move to chapter 3, we saw that the book of Nehemiah shifts from an emphasis on the character of Nehemiah himself and shifts more to talking about the people of God as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But we found that it's not so much about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, as it was about rebuilding the people of God. Last week in particular, Brad was up here, and he talked us through chapter 10, where after having completed the wall, the people go through the act of reestablishing their covenant with God. We saw the people reaffirm their relationship with God and commit themselves to living according to his law, and with particular emphasis on breaking the patterns of sin that have existed in Israel's history and in the cultures around them. And that brings us up to where we're at today as we look at chapter 13, which actually takes a bit of an unexpected turn. But I'm going to let Paul talk to you about that. Oh, good morning. Just to echo uh, Brian's welcome. Yeah, we're just so glad that you can join with us here in person this morning. And uh, if you're joining us online, as Mike said, with pants uh, provided, that would be fantastic. So as we're diving into this chapter 13 of Nehemiah, it actually brings up some memories of, of a camping story that a good buddy of mine and I did uh, a few years back. We had this great expectation to go on this uh, weekend journey, and we were going to survive off of you know, all the fruits and, and animals of the field and... Uh, try to build up our shelter and everything with the resources that, that God has provided us in this beautiful valley. And though this plan was great, and we had these, uh, these lofty ideas of what would happen, the reality struck us 
to our core. We ended up coming back to camp time and time again, more hungry, more disappointed, in despair, wet, soaking with just, I mean, I think emotional pain, if we're <laughs> gonna be so dramatic. Um, but there was this time of coming back to camp with less food, less resources, and we didn't pack enough, enough for the weekend. And every time we came back, we ended up worse than where we started off had we not even gone. And in coming into this chapter 13 of Nehemiah, I think sometimes we're struck by why does the chapter end off this way? Why is it that Nehemiah, he leaves for 12 years and then he comes back and the people of Israel are in a similar situation as my friend and myself. They are right back to where they started, but they're in an even worse position. The people had fallen back into their sin, and Nehemiah tries to bring them back to where they were last week when we were talking about chapters 10 to 12. You know, 12 years have passed since this last week. And it's a bit depressing and anticlimactic. Nehemiah, he's angry, and he separates himself from the people of God because he's, he views it as it's their responsibility for this compromising community of Israel. You know, we start off, in, if we look at chapter, verse 11 in chapter 13, that he, he's immediately confronting the temple and the leaders with inside there, and he's trying to purify the temple, that this is a place where God should reign. And then he moves on to the Sabbath day, the day that they're supposed to set aside to point themselves towards God. And we are just going through a series on Sabbath, and how important it is, that it's woven into creation. And they've lost that completely. And then he goes on in verse 25 to the people, and he's trying to reshape their hearts and reshape their identity as they've taken on these foreign practices, they've taken on foreign spouses, they've lost their language, they can't even read the book of the law of Moses. And then he goes after the leaders the priests that were supposed to be directing these people. And I'm sure there were some difficult conversations that he would have had to have had. But Israel has gone against every commitment that they made 12 years ago. And they've done the exact opposite of what they said they would do. And so we get these almost four benedictory prayers from Nehemiah in, in chapter 13. If you'll read with me in verse 14. Nehemiah says this, Remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its service. <laughs> and then we're, we're struck with verse 22, if we'll just start reading from the, uh, the, the half of that verse. Remember this good deed also, O my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. So he has these two self, almost reflective of, God, remember what you've been able to do through me. And then he comes to verse 29. And he says, Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and the Levites. He's so frustrated. He says, God, don't, don't just remember what you've been able to do through me, but remember what lack 
they have done through you. Remember that they have been desecrating your temple. They're the people themselves. They're your Sabbath. And the priests themselves have not been upholding what they are supposed to uphold. And then we're left with the very last chronological words of the Old Testament. Verse 31 and I also made sure that the supplies of the wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. And this right here. Remember this in my favor, oh my God. In some ways, Israel is right back to where they started time and time again in their history. So, so Brian, if I may ask, what happens to the community and the people of Israel? Sure. So... Uh, I mean, the very next thing that happens, a- as you mentioned, this is chronologically like the last story that we get of the narrative of Israel's progression. Uh, we have a number of books that are still in the Old Testament, but in terms of the narrative of, of the progression of Israel, this is like the last event. And so this is, this is kind of the gateway to uh, the next thing that happens is 400 years, and then Jesus comes. Uh, but, but as we've looked at uh, this passage, we've noticed that there's, uh, if chapters 1 and 2 focused on Nehemiah, and chapter 3 through 12 focuses on the community, uh, chapter 13 gets a bit of a blend of both. And, and so we wanted to look at, at both of those pieces, uh, at the individual Nehemiah and at the community of God, and explore what, they hap- what, what happened with them. Uh, as we do that, I think we notice a couple of things, per- particularly as I've been looking at the community, Uh, And and as you said, in in chapter 13, we find the community back to where they started from. Uh, There's some really interesting contrasts between what we uh, heard about last week with Brad's preaching on chapter 10 and and exactly what they're doing in chapter 13. Uh, As Paul mentioned, there's been at least 12 years between last week and this week, like a typical COVID march, right? Uh, There's been 12 years in the last week. But, But I think we'll start back at chapter 10 i just flip back a few pages, and I want to read just a few passages, a few verses. I'll start in verse 30. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land, and not to let our sons marry their daughters. Brad mentioned this last week, that, that there's this problem of intermixing faith. And in verse 31, we also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath, or any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. We're not going to buy and sell because the Sabbath is not a day for buying and selling. And in verse 32, in addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver, for this will care for the temple of our God. These are the promises they made in chapter 10. But as we flip back to uh, chapter 13, let's look at what they're doing. Verse 23, At the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. And jumping back, we're going to go backwards through this chapter. Verse 19, I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in through the Sabbath day. Uh, They've intermarried. And then Nehemiah has to post guards to stop people from coming in to sell things on the Sabbath. Because in these 12 years, they've come back to that practice. Jumping back again, verse 10. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. 
They and all the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to their work in the field. Uh, The people stopped paying the temple tax. And as a result, the Levites and the priests didn't get any money, and they had to go back and find other jobs to support themselves. These are all the things, and we could go on. We could go on looking at chapter 10 and 13. We find that they're just back to where they started, doing the very things they said they wouldn't. As I've been looking at this, uh, of course the question is, why are they back here? Why are they repeating the same practices? Why are they repeating this pattern? And my first thought is that maybe they were just insincere. Maybe they didn't really mean it. When chapter 10 uh, and, and all along as they're recommitting themselves to God, maybe they just didn't really mean it. Maybe they somehow did it wrong. But as I reread Nehemiah, there's no sense of that. There's no sense that they somehow were insincere or that they uh, didn't repent for enough. It doesn't seem like that's what happened. Instead, what it seems like happened is time has passed. And the people of Israel are surrounded by foreign nations, and we live in a world that's tainted by sin, and the pressure of the world around us and the reality of sin in that world is relentless. And the reality is that living rightly as the people of God is hard work. This is a community that is constantly swimming upstream. And we have an enemy who is patient and waiting for those moments when we're tired or where we're careless and when we think, oh, a little thing here and a little thing there. And pretty soon, over time, we find that there's a radical difference between the people of God in chapter 10 and the people of God that we find in chapter 13. They're repeating this pattern over and over. It's the same pattern that has plagued Israel from the garden. From Eden through Israel's history, they come back and they do the same pattern over and over and over again. Now, if that's true of the community, this repeating pattern of returning to the pattern to sin, returning to the same problems, I, I wonder, Paul, do we see Nehemiah also falling into a pattern? Does he also repeat things that we've seen before? Absolutely. There's this really interesting uh, contrast and complementative uh, view that we have in viewing the community and Nehemiah as an individual. Nehemiah repeats a similar pattern to previous uh, Israelite leaders. Yeah. So if we look at, at the books of Nehemiah and, or Ezra and Nehemiah together, we actually see that there was first Zerubbabel, and then there's Ezra, and then there's Nehemiah. And each of these men, they start off with a really great plan that they've been given from God or directed by from God, or, or in Nehemiah's case, he reads through the, the book of the Law of Moses. And everything goes really, really great to Israel's restoration. And I mean, if we even want to look further back on Moses himself, they, it's, it's a bit of the same call in, in right. a way. That there's this great flowing up, and then Moses hits the rock. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they have these frustrating moments with Israel's people, and they react in an anticlimactic way. You know, if Nehemiah was 
we would just want to end the chapter off at chapter 12, and we would be clear sailing from there. Everything would be great. Absolutely. Nehemiah is discontent and frustrated with Israel again. Though this time, is he burnt out? Or is there something else that his frustration should point us towards? He starts pulling out the, the beards or, or the hair of, of people within the community. And this is this really interesting way of, of dishonoring men within right. within their context. I mean, I know we can't really do that during this COVID time, and I don't really encourage too many church leaders to pull out it's each taken, other's... It's taken me 42 years to build this, like, little tuft down here, so I cannot <laughs> afford to have people pulling it out. Yeah. There, there's a couple reasons why we don't do this anymore. But this, in, in biblical times, was a display of shameful conduct. And just as you know, it's, it's in some ways shameful for them to have parts of their beard missing, especially ripped out by their godly leaders. This should even heighten their understanding of their conduct with foreign nations and taking on their identity, not taking on the identity that God has given them. And then on top of that, as Brian had read, and if we want to flip back to chapter 10, Nehemiah makes them quote this exact promise that they made in chapter 10. They said that we promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not let our sons marry their daughters. Except this is exactly what has happened. Nehemiah then has to, he addresses the leaders and the people in their disregard of honoring God, which was the reason that brought them into exile. They're literally being the people that Nehemiah wept and mourned over at the very start. Yeah. And now this has become their reality. And it's interesting that in Nehemiah's cleansing and purifying of these people and the temple, that there's a foreshadow of Christ coming and purifying his temple. Yeah. And in some ways we could maybe say that this is the same temple in the exact same location, though it's changed in appearance during these 400 years. There's a disappointing end to Nehemiah here, but it's not done without a reason. If, as we said, if Nehemiah ended in chapter 12, we would have had all these prophecies almost fulfilled in a way of the uh, restoration of Israel. But to have chronologically it end extremely depressing note with the leaders looking towards God saying, what do we do next? Should just point them further that they have not been restored, but there is a restoration to come. You see, there's 400 years of silence that the Israelites get to go through. And as, as we had said before, that this is the last thing that we're left with. Remember this for my favor, oh my God. God, I tried. I, what do I do next? W what is there to do? And it should be noted that this, being God's temple, is the last place that we're left with in the Old Testament. It's the exact beginning of the New Testament. God's temple is where we hear of John the Baptist coming. And John the Baptist brings the start of Christ coming right. in. Right. And so I, it's just these interesting things that are going on 
in, in this geographical place with the people and what it's pointing us towards. So, Brian, what what is this looking for the the people of God moving forward? So, uh, let's. I want to I want to hit on something that you said there. You're saying that Nehemiah's path is both emphasizing a pattern that's happened in the past, but it's also pushing us forward to something that's going to happen in the future. His actions are repeating these problematic leaders, but it's also foreshadowing Christ in the temple as he cleanses the temple. Uh, uh, there's, there's something about this text that is both a repetition of what's come, but it also pushes us forward. And, and, and as we look at the people of God, uh, I think there's something like that happening for in the text uh, as well. Uh, one thing that we've been doing a lot uh, is the, in the series on Nehemiah is we've been connecting the dots between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the people of God and our own situation here at MJAC. And, and we've been drawing connections about the process of what it looks like to restore and to repent and to rebuild. But I think it's worth noting that the people of God that we are looking at here in the text of Nehemiah are actually radically different from the people of God that exist today, uh, and particularly our community at MJAC. I want to point to some of the things that happen. But, uh, these texts push us forward to the future, but there's some key things that happen in between them and us because we live on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that changes things fundamentally. Uh, let's look at a couple of passages. I'll start in Jeremiah 31. This is a promise that's made to Israel. A, a promise that the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, are looking forward to. It says this, uh, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant though I loved them as a husband loved his wife. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. If we jump over to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, we read this. For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. These are promises that were made to the people of Israel, promises that the people of uh, Nehemiah's day are recognizing and looking forward to, but they are not promises that we look forward to. They're promises that we live within. This is reality for us. God has made a new covenant for us and given a new heart in the actions of Jesus Christ. And we live on the other side of the resurrection, so we don't look forward to these promises. We live within them. Now, I want to be careful here because uh, as much as that's wonderful and beautiful news, it's the kind of news that we should be really excited about. And in fact, we will be really excited about it in just a few weeks when we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. We're going to have a big party, a big COVID safe. I, I don't know how it's going to work, but, but, but it's a cause of great celebration. But I want to be careful 
Because just as the people of Israel repeat the same cycles, uh, what I'm not suggesting is that if we have the Holy Spirit, we'll never struggle with sin. That's, that's not the way it works. The truth is that we still fall into patterns. Patterns are patterns for a reason, because they repeat themselves, right? Uh, I'm not suggesting that w if we just got it right now with the Holy Spirit, uh, we'll sail off into the sunset living sinless perfection and never struggling again. That's probably not what's going to happen. Because just like the people of Israel find that living life rightly is hard work, uh, on this side of the resurrection, there's still no easy path for the Christian faith. Just as the struggle of the world and the reality of sin in our world and the culture around takes its toll on the people of Israel, it also takes its toll on us. The reality is that we will still struggle with pride, and we will still mess up, and we will still make poor decisions, and we will still mis misrepresent Jesus and his kingdom. But there is a key difference, and that is that we have the Holy Spirit. And if we are walking in the Spirit, we hold a heart that actually wants to repent. We have a tender and responsive heart. This is something that I've been noticing as we move through this series, and it's been striking me really personally, uh, looking at this idea of repentance. Uh, as we move through Nehemiah, we find that uh, right from chapter 1, Nehemiah is brought to confession, and the people of God are constantly brought back to confession and repentance. And, and, and they don't seem to have a sense of repentance that is about uh, personal shame. Although they repent for their own actions, they're constantly repenting for also for the actions of their community and the actions of their ancestors. And all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they're constantly being brought back to this idea of repentance as though it's not just about personal or individual shame, about repenting and confessing the wrong things I've done. It's more like they're invited into this attitude of repentance. That in the kingdom of God, repentance is a beautiful thing that we're invited into constantly. And with the Holy Spirit in us, it's a, something that we actually long to do, to constantly come back and throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and understand that His grace for us is bigger than our sins. His grace for us is bigger than the problems in our community. His grace for us is bigger than the patterns that we are doomed to repeat. And, and that beautiful notion is something that the Holy Spirit actually gives us a desire for, that repentance isn't just something that we have to do to fix mistakes. It's actually a value that's intrinsic to the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I could get to preaching. Uh, but, but we also got a couple other things that we got to talk to. So Paul, I, I uh, uh, if we're noticing that this passage pushes us forward to anticipate and reflect on the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, what do you see as you look at Nehemiah's actions in chapter 13? Mm -hmm. uh, so, as, as we were saying, you know, there's these frustrations that Nehemiah is going through, and, and there's this pattern of sin that is happening within the community. And one of the things that we talk about, you know, within, within leadership, within conversational uh, management and con conflict management, is that if things are contextual, if this was just the first time that Israel had done this, it would be just a contextual conversation that, you know, Nehemiah probably wouldn't be running around pulling out people's hair, forcing them into, you know, this is the oath that you said. It would be a very different conversation with sure. the leaders, with the people, and with their actions. 
But since it's a pattern, it's actually a relational problem. It's a relational issue that they have. And so, plus, these people are God's people. Yeah. So, to an extent, there's only so much that we as humans can offer. It's right. only so much that Nehemiah can offer these people in bringing them to a restored Israel. Right. And as we, yeah, had said that there's this pulling back and there's this looking forward, we can say now, looking back on, you know, the whole New Testament happening and 2,000 years uh, of, of history here, that, oh, well, they should just, you know, look forward to the Messiah. It's, it's pretty easy. Why not? Um, but no, they're left in 400 years of silence. So what do they do? Well, I, I think one of the things that, that we're drawn back to is that exact message that Pastor Kirk had, had given in chapter 1, that in moving forward in the 400 years looking towards Messiah Jesus coming, that Nehemiah and the people need to, as we had talked about in our small groups uh, about five weeks ago, we need to lean into the pain. They need to lean into the reality that they are in, into the mess that they have caused, into the mess that they have maybe set up for themselves. They need to learn what they can learn from it. They need to own what they can own. Nehemiah, the people included. And then they need to listen to what God is telling them. That's exactly Nehemiah's posture if we read through the first few verses of chapter 1, and that gives him a heart to bring this community into restoration. And if we take these as an acronym of leaning in and owning what we can own and listening to what God is telling us, we get this acronym of LOL. And I, I think sometimes as, as leaders, when life is just so chaotic that we just don't understand what is going on, that we just need to laugh a little bit. Because God, you have brought us into the most ridiculous, messed up situation that I could have never imagined, and I need you so deeply. Hmm. How often does that happen when there's an unexpected hailstorm on the field? Or one equipment breaks down after the next, after the next, or one person resigns after the next person resigns after the next person resigns. What do we do in those situations? I think, to an extent, we need to laugh about it, but it should point us towards fixating our eyes on Jesus. And, yeah, as we've said, this book chronologically closes the Old Testament, so it should be fitting that there is no resolution within this chapter as everyone waits for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that's come and for the prophecy of the Messiah. But uh, as we focus on Israel specifically in this time, what, what does this mean for us, Brian? I mean, that's always the question of a, a, a chapter, a book, a series. What does this mean for us? You know, uh, Paul, you've already pointed that uh, Nehemiah's actions both point towards Christ, but they're also problematic, that he ends up separating himself a bit from the community and being like, remember them for their bad things, remember me for all the good things I've done. But there's a way in which this chapter calls us back to Nehemiah's posture in chapter 1 of waiting and grieving and repenting. Uh, I think, too, as we look at our own patterns, as we connect the dots back to MJAC, uh, looking at uh, a community 
that finds themselves after a period of time repeating the same things that they've been through before. There's something that resonates for those of us who have been around a while. You might be saying, man, I feel like that's us. We are repeating the same things we've been, like, we've been talking about these four truths here, and, and particularly through this uh, community. We've been calling back to repentance. We've been calling to restored relationships. We've been calling, uh, restoring financial uh, problems and, and fixing finances. And it feels like we've been down this road before. Didn't we go through freedom in Christ not that long ago? And haven't we done all that work in soul care? And what did we do? Like, wh why did we do all that if we just find ourselves back calling ourselves to the same things over and over and over again? I, I think there's a temptation to be frustrated by the repetition of a pattern. There's a temptation to think, what was the point of doing it, and what's the point of doing it again? Why would we go and look at our vision statements again? Why would we call ourselves to repentance again? Because we're just going to end up back in the same place. It's the thing we've done before. And our temptation is to be frustrated. But I think the call of Nehemiah is actually to embrace the opportunity to walk in the Spirit. There is beauty in a community that is constantly being called back to Jesus. If repentance is really a value of the kingdom, then actually having opportunity to come back and center ourselves again and say, yeah, we're going to continue to repent for the things that we've repented of before. We're going to continue to want to walk on the right path. And, and, and as the pressures of this world and the reality of sin and the community around us puts pressure on us and we find ourselves drifting and we say, man, we, we, maybe we're a chapter 10 and maybe we're a chapter 13, that we constantly long to enter into those engagements where we bring ourselves back and we repeat the pattern of chapter 1 instead of the problems of chapter 13. We come back and say there's beauty in starting over, in waiting, in repenting, in grieving, in walking in humility, in putting aside our pride, in embracing the Spirit. Uh, and, and as we look forward to the Spirit uh, as reflecting in Israel's time here, I, I don't think that we should forget lightly at all the whole New Testament that has happened. Absolutely. And, and friends, family, as we have journeyed together, I know that there is some of us that have weekly, daily, just said thank you, Jesus, for coming down to us, saving someone like me, hmm. being my savior, being my healer, my sanctifier, and my coming king. As we look forward to a day that Christ is coming again, friends, we want to challenge you this week to make intentional moments to listen to God and what he is speaking to you, and more importantly, that we feel challenged from this text, is that we need to constantly be thankful for what Christ has done for us. So if we take moments this week, friends, just to say thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, for being my Savior, and for welcoming me into this kingdom that does not bring shame in repentance, but brings it as a value that brings us closer to God. So family, let us pray together as we are sent. Jesus, we just thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for these times that you have been working in Israel's history, in your people's history. 
God, we thank you for the times that you've been working within our lives, that you've been reshaping us, giving us a new heart, sanctifying us to become more like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you fill us today for whatever conversation that we need to have. Perhaps there are patterned conversations that will take lots of work and lots of reliance upon your spirit. And we just ask that you will strengthen us for those conversations. And perhaps there's contextual conversations or, or conversations that don't need as much effort put into them. But God, I just pray that you make us ready for whatever those might look like. God, we thank you for this church, for this body of believers that we have, that we can gather together and praise your name, sing your praises for the fulfillment of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.